Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome everyone to the Australian Chiropractic Association podcast. I'm your podcast host for today, Luke Nelson. Low back pain is very common. In fact, almost everyone at some stage in their life will suffer from back pain. Low back pain is the leading cause of activity limitation and work absence throughout much of the world and is associated with an enormous economic burden. Today, I have the privilege of speaking to someone who has dedicated a large portion of their life researching back pain and searching for, lo- for solutions for those that suffer from this condition. So it brings me great on to introduce Dr. Stuart McGill. Now, Dr. Stuart McGill is a professor emeritus at the University of Waterloo, where he was a professor for 30 years. His laboratory and experimental research clinic investigated issues related to the causal mechanisms of back pain, how to rehabilitate back pain people and enhance both injury resilience and performance. His advice is often sought by governments, corporations, legal experts, medical groups and elite athletes and teams from around the world. His work has produced a staggering 240 peer-reviewed scientific journals, several textbooks and many international awards. He mentored over 37 graduate students during this scientific journey. During this time, he's taught thousands of clinicians and practitioners in professional development and continue education courses around the world. He's also written a number of books, including Low Back Disorders, Back Mechanic and The Gift of Injury um, to help those recovering from back injury. He continues as the Chief Scientific Officer of BackFit Pro. Uh, difficult cases are often referred to him for consultation. And we're very privileged to announce that Stu will be making his way over here to Oz for one last time to present his four-day course in both Sydney and Melbourne. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that, uh, that later on. So it's with great excitement that uh, I introduce you, Stu, to the ACA podcast. Wow, what an introduction. I thought you were going to say I was a fast bowler in cricket. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's, uh, well, I I didn't know if over there in the Canadians, although you do have a a team in the the World Cup, but uh, it's very much a a big sport over here at the moment in in Australia. And and certainly uh, there's a fair share of back injuries in in those. So we we might be able to touch on that a bit uh, bit later on. Um, But I thought off we'd... we'd, uh, First of all, kick off by uh, letting us know how you got to, to where you are now, your journey. Well, uh, I'll tell the uh, short story. I uh, did my PhD in spine biomechanics, and as a young professor, I just started asking one single and simple question, how does the back work? Uh, my clinical colleagues would ask me to come to their meetings, whether it be uh, orthopedics or neurology and say, well, you know, come and tell us what you're, you're finding. And I would, and they would say, well, that's interesting. We don't think that way, but would you come and see a patient with us? And I would say, no, I'm not a clinician. Uh, but they said, well, that's okay. We'll be there with you. And uh, I found out very quickly that the way our scientific method guided our assessment of pain was very different from the way they thought. And that really was the beginning of it all. And I uh, was asked to see patients. And uh, that was about uh, almost 30 years ago, I suppose. And we started a, uh, uh, a research clinic at the university to go along with our scientific laboratories. Uh, so we, we actually had three simultaneous laboratories. 
and I, I guess uh, I ended up somehow in this aberration that I am today. I've, um, I'm now retired from the university, but I still see patients uh, one or two days a week. And so going on from that, what, what does a, a consultation look like with the world-renowned Stu McGill? <laughs> well, I'm a bit difficult to get to. So they, most of them fly in from somewhere in the world uh, and they either fly to Toronto and then they have a two and a half hour car rental journey up here to uh, Muskoka or they uh, fly, say they're an athlete with their own uh, jet or they've hired a, a net jet or whatever it is these days. They can fly right to an airport and I, I can drive right out onto the runway and pick them up, <laughs> which is only 10 minutes away. But uh, I, the second I lay eyes on them, the uh, assessment starts. Um, I might be looking for uh, habits, uh, postural habits, gait habits, uh, peculiar intelligence, uh, or whatever the case may be. Uh, but then I ask them when they come into my living room, just tell me your story. And I leave it like that, very open-ended. And uh, it was so interesting, historically, when I first started the research clinic, I set aside two-hour appointment times. And my colleagues said, you're nuts, a two-hour appointment, that's never been done before. And I soon changed that after the first year to three-hour appointments. It took that long because we only saw the failures. We didn't see the average back pain uh, patient, if there is such a thing. Um, and if we were going to make a difference, we had to understand the impediments in their lives that have led them to failure all the way through previous experiences. Uh, anyway, I just let them talk all the time. I'm watching their habits. I might uh, throw in a few clandestine tests. For example, I might say, would you hand me that backpack over there? Or just, I want to see the move and bend and the strategies that they employ. Um, I uh, am assessing their learning style and how I'm going to coach them later. Some may never even mention their pain. It's so curious. Some may tell me about their job or their family uh, and what they miss because they are disabled in uh, terms of doing things with their family and that kind of thing. Uh, and then uh, after that could be 10 minutes, it could be half an hour. Uh, then I might ask some very specific questions to try and get an understanding of the character of the pain, what time of day, uh, specific questions like if I'm hearing a pattern of spine instability, I might ask them, do you ever have a sharp pain when you roll over in bed? Which is a, a question and answer highly correlated to segmental instability, for example. It's just an exercise in pattern recognition. Then I go downstairs and we start provocative testing and I try and isolate specific pain triggers. And then immediately when we found a trigger, I try and come up with a mechanical antidote. Can I take their pain away? So now I've got a little bit of an understanding of cause and effect and which direction to take them. Uh, then I go catatonic. Uh, I say to them, would you give me five minutes, please? And I just sit down, I look at all of my notes, I consider what I heard in the interview, and I converge on my understanding of their pain mechanism. The next uh, task is to then describe it to them. And, uh, you know, I've become so much better, I think, in how I describe uh, the pain uh, to them. 
Now, it's so interesting. Sometimes I really downplay the mechanism. Uh, I tell it to them truthfully, but uh, if uh, I need to give them encouragement, I will. But say I have another person who just is an exercise addict and they never give themselves a chance to adapt to a pain-free state. I am quite the opposite. I might overplay and say, you need to rest. You're an exercise addict and uh, you can go and have surgery tomorrow, which when you think about it is forced rest. Why don't we just play hmm. a game called virtual surgery and we will force you to rest and uh, we will create a recovery program as if you had the surgery. And I measured that, Luke. I followed up with every patient we ever saw. 95% of those patients who followed that plan avoided surgery. And uh, in, in years afterwards in follow-up, they were glad that they did. Anyway, uh, I then show them movement hacks, perhaps, how to uh, address the cause of their pain, if I can. Uh, to wind down the pain sensitivity. And then the last part is to create a progression uh, to build them all back up again to whatever their goal is. So obviously, if they're a competitive power lifter, that's very, very different than uh, a 75-year-old who uh, simply wants to go for a walk uh, with uh, his or her dog, I suppose. Anyway, that's uh, about three hours right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah just, a, just a quick three-hour consult. But, uh, and that's, that's incredibly detailed. There are a couple of things to, to ask on that, but um, you spoke about um, the pain triggers um, and things are looking for for the, their their symptom um, provocation or reproduction, can you give an example of, of just a few you know a few things that might come to mind, or some of the more common things that you, you might see, and how you've sort of managed to tease that out? Absolutely. Well, first of all, there's no single test that in of itself is conclusive to reveal aha that is the pain trigger. Now, interestingly enough, there are a few tests of exclusion. For example, if you do a standing extension with bend and rotation to really uh, load up the facet joints, for example, on one particular side in compression, and they say, well, that doesn't hurt, you can now exclude uh, the neural arch and uh, facet joints as possible pain uh, candidates. So there are those kinds of tests because if you know what it isn't, it helps you to keep going down the path to, to keep probing to find out what it is. But let me give you an example of a seated compression test, which is one that I might often start with. Um, I, years ago, I was asked to write an editorial for Archives of Physical Medicine because I was fairly outspoken in the journalistic practice of an order for you to publish a orthopedic test or a pain provocation test in one of the journals, you had to prove its reliability. I was dead against that because consider a sitting slump test, which every uh, person learns in school, doesn't matter whether it's uh, orthopedics, chiro, physio, whatever, you learn the slump test, which is a highly repeatable uh, and, and reliable test. Uh, the first-year student gets the same result as the old master, but it is nonspecific. It doesn't tell you what nerve root is involved or, uh, you know, it doesn't identify tissues. All you know is that it causes uh, familiar pain or maybe radiating pain or not. However, if you do a sitting test, ask the person to sit tall 
and say, do you have pain right now? Let's assume they say no. And then you say, okay, don't move your head and neck, but now slouch down, drop your chest and, and tuck your pelvis under to, to, to create, I wouldn't say to create spine flexion, but I coach it out of them. And then they'll say, oh yeah, that, that, that causes my back pain. That's a familiar back pain. And then I take their head and I might flex it and turn it and say, oh yeah, now my right toe just started to go numb. And then I move their head up, but I leave the rest of their spine in the same uh, posture. And they say, oh yeah, my, my back pain is worse, but my toe pain just went away. And I say, all right, now let's sit up. Okay, my back pain just left. Now go to extension. Oh, that doesn't hurt. Now drop your head back. Oh yeah, there goes my toe again. Well, do you see the specificity? I've just identified that neural friction, I'm pulling the cord cranially and caudally, is associated with uh, the very distal symptom, but not their back pain. And yet it was the spine posture and the migration of load onto tissues that deformed with flexion. So there might be an example of how I know what it isn't, and that's how I might start to converge on what it actually uh, is. But if we keep putting together those tests, uh, we can uh, quite confidently isolate it down to, this is the specific posture, the specific, uh, in the specific mode, be it traction or bending or uh, compression or shear. Shear is highly provocative for, for many uh, backs. Uh, then we can go for the tissue and then we can show them, you know, I mean, I don't know why this is on my mind tonight, but some couples, well, I'm sure couples have said to you, said to you, Dr. Nelson, we've been celibate for three months because last time we had sex, we were, we've knackered our backs for the last four months and we're so fearful. Mm -hmm. And you know, what guidelines exist to guide you However, if you do provocative testing and you learn what their specific trigger is, uh, I don't know if you're aware, we've actually created charts of uh, different techniques to show, well, this is triggered by extension, this is triggered by flexion, and, and now we've got guidance specifically for them uh, to, to uh, deal with it. But there's an example, I suppose, of... Uh, and and do you find that with yeah so once you've identified some of those triggers um and some advice on then avoiding those do you find that is that then is that a, something that they permanently need to avoid or is it only you know temporary to let symptoms settle or what, what have you found with some of the, the people you've worked with is it more a, you need to stop doing this full stop or let's just stay away from it for you know a given time yeah, well, that, that's a fabulous question. And the answer, of course, is it depends. Mm. I mean, I'm, I specialize, as you probably know, in restoring the careers of, of high-performance athletes. Uh, if your job is to throw uh, or bowl a, a fast bowl in, in cricket, you may very well have to regain the ability to do the thing that is quite offensive to your back today. So uh, it becomes quite an expertise to mechano-stimulate or create the neural changes, whatever the case may be, to uh, deal with the pain triggers, desensitize them, and then create the adaptations necessary. So I can give you an example there uh, because I wrote a book called Gift of Injury uh, that was a, a record setting, uh, held two world records, a fellow named Brian Carroll. 
uh, he came to me and said, you know, I've, I've really injured my back and I'm in terrible pain. Can, can you help me? And uh, in the book, it shows the MRIs uh, of his condition when we first saw him heavily fractured sacrum, the sacral plateau, heavily fractured L5, and uh, really just a flattened disc, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, I tried doing a kyphoplasty on a cadaver once we'd created the same injury and, and we couldn't seal the disc and contain the nucleus pressure and all that kind of thing. So I said to him, you know, the only option that I have in my skill set is let's try a round of bone callusing and see if we can seal the end plate and rebuild the bone. I said, I've only done it two or three times. There's no promises here, but through appropriate mechanostimulation, we can do it. Uh, at least we can attempt it. And he said, yep, I'm all in. It's really the only option he, he had. And uh, over the next year, he would train uh, a small stimulation to the bone and then took five days to allow the scaffolding of new uh, ions of, of basic bone material, magnesium and calcium and that kind of thing. But it takes five days to, to build the scaffold so they don't break off the next time you load it. Uh, and he did that for a year. Well, he cheated on me. He actually only did it for about eight months, but it created sufficient resilience in dealing with that specific uh, damage uh, and long story short, uh, three years later, he won the Arnolds and to prove it wasn't a fluke, he did it yet again the following year after that. We then show his MRs after that time. And uh, it's a real testament to when you get the stimulation right to create the foundational adaptation. Um, it's, uh, you know, we keep hearing about things like, oh, degenerative disc disease. I don't believe it exists. The body is struggling all the time to regenerate, and we keep doing stupid things that inhibit that. Um, now, of course, I, I realize there's, you know, nasty things like rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. I, I get all of that, but uh, in in many cases, the uh, spine and associated tissues can adapt back to a pain-free state and quite often a highly load-bearing uh, state. Anyway, there's a, yeah, that's, that's probably that's, talk too much a, about that. I know no, we could, we could, uh, I could let you go for, for hours uh, and, and I'd be, you'd have, uh, have me on every word. Um, the, with that you mentioned um, with that, uh, that end plate healing uh, and you've had a couple of others, were they, was it a similar management for them as well too, in that you were looking at that 12 months and just sort of small doses of, of, of load, you know, every, every five days? Those, those no, other no, 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 not at all. Let's take uh, another mechanism. Let's say, uh, geez, I wish I was down in the clinic here. I, I have models of all of these different <laughs> uh, types of uh, mechanisms. One would be uh, a fissure through the annulus of the disc that uh, creates a bulge upon bending a certain way. Um, and you pressurize the nucleus, you bend, and if the fissure is on this side, it creates hydraulic effort, uh, which forces the gel through the delaminations along the fissure, and uh, a very common place for people, interestingly enough, with limacon-shaped uh, discs, which happen to be in people with heavier boned, thicker skeleton types of spines. 
um, it creates uh, a, a bulge. And yet, if they can avoid that posture that drives the hydraulics, um, you could uh, lay them on your treatment table, uh, have them relax as we do upon exhalation. And if you applied a gentle traction to their legs, we've measured how you can vacuum in that displaced nucleus very, very quickly. And then they can go out and walk and run and do all kinds of things quite quickly. So if they manage that particular posturally driven mechanism, uh, they're very resilient uh, within a few days. So there's a contrast. It doesn't take a year. It just takes managing the symptoms to subclinical levels. And, uh, you know, if they're a bad boy or girl, and re repeat the offense before that disc has actually gristled again, then all right, the, the, the symptoms will let them know not to do that. But uh, they can learn quite quickly. With it. So there's two injuries, two ends of the spectrum, I suppose. And others, you know, if it's a muscular-based issue. Uh, if I held my arm against gravity like this all day long, I'd have a cramp in my bicep. Well, a person who goes around all day long with their chin poked out and they wonder why they have muscular backache. And then when you do the hardware change through specific exercises, uh, all of a sudden they're able to stand upright and shut down those muscles that aren't needed for postural uh, maintenance anymore. And uh, their pain goes away uh, quite quickly as well. But now you're dealing with software. It is their habit to slouch and protrude their chin. So, you know, that, isn't that quite a different medical intervention now? You're not fixing hardware, if you want to. You're fixing their software and their movement habits. So uh, I've had some patients who immediately, they get it, they think about it, and it becomes a high priority for them. The next person remains mentally clueless and very unaware of their body. And, you know, isn't this the story? We could, we could yeah. talk about this with, with anything. You know, you go to one person, you say, you know, smoking is killing you. And they say, I get it. I'll never have another cigarette in my life. And they don't. And then the next person well, is a repeat yeah. offender for the rest of their life. Yeah. This, this human condition is so interesting. <laughs> what, what makes our job interesting. And you've mentioned, yeah. you mentioned a few, or oh, I've touched on a few things there in terms of uh, trying to find this pain trigger. Now, one of the, the things I, I was lucky enough to see you speak in, in Athens at the WFC about three or four years ago. And um, one of your opening lines was about uh, this title, non-specific uh, low back pain. Uh, I was wondering if you could just just expand on on your thoughts on uh, on non-specific low back pain, that label and that diagnosis. <laughs> well, anyone who comes in with non-specific back pain just shows me they have never had a, a thorough assessment. Hmm. Um, you know, pain isn't normal. It uh, it's it's there for a reason. Can you can you imagine a patient coming in and saying, "Oh, geez, Doctor Nelson, I've got non-specific head pain." Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we don't put up with that. We do an assessment to figure out the mechanism. So I don't know why the the, the back should be uh, uh, any different. But uh, you know, as I uh, always used to say to my students, if you can't find the cause of their pain, don't blame the patient. Mm -hmm. It's your fault. You missed something. Get back to work and find out what the cause is. 
And, and going on from that, the, the cause, just wondering if you could to, you know, give her a few clinical pearls on, on some of the things to pick up with uh, that might indicate whether it is more disc or whether it's more uh, the posterior neural arch there, the end place, some of those things that you, you, you find. Yeah, well, I could use several scientific uh, data sets to answer that one. I suppose the first one, and I've never really written about this, but I go back to our early work when we were implanting intramuscular electrodes into the deep muscles of the spine, you know, quadratus and and psoas, uh, etc. And as my medical colleagues were implanting those, I was the first subject, which uh, I almost always was for all of the experiments. I would say, go and hook on a nerve root or pull on a ligament or tickle my annulus or push on a vertebral uh, uh, spinous process or, or something like that. And uh, to see if I could distinguish the different types of pain, and absolutely you can if you have that experience. Hmm. Um, let me just take a journey of putting a cannula through the abdominal wall. So the skin pain, as the cannula first goes through the skin, is a burn. That's really what skin pain is. But then it hits the fascia. Fascial pain, you know, there are some medics who, who dismiss even to this day the existence of, uh, the, the, they deny the existence of myofascial pain. But if you take fascia and you scratch it with your fingers across like this, it creates a swirly pattern of, of this scratchy pain. And when a patient does this with their hand around their shoulder, up their neck, swirling over their hips into the abdominal region, and they say, I have this swirly pain when I do that. That is so descriptive of what it feels like when the cannula presses up in the fascia. And then it pops through into external oblique in this case. And it feels like a pressure, just a pressure in the base of the, the, the thumb is how you, you could mimic that and coach that. And then, of course, it goes through the fascia, that scratchy pain as it pops into internal oblique. Eventually, you're going to go a bit too far and tickle the peritoneum. And that creates a sick feeling uh, above the pubis and below the navel. Uh, you know, and, and that, that is a real red flag for us. There's, we, we would say, you know, really encourage further investigation. And we found tumors, uh, fresh abdominal uh, infections, et cetera, just by understanding the description of those uh, different pain uh, uh, patterns. Um, but the, uh, yeah, talking about... Um, specificity. We're always searching for tests that pull out signal to noise. So I've given you an example of uh, a fissured uh, disc. And um, once we've honed in on specific postures that create a distal symptom, we know we have a, a nerve root involved. Um, at that point, tracking the dermatome, I would say that's the L4. Say, say it's the little toe on the right-hand side that that's the, the person is reporting the symptom. Well, that's the fourth root on the right side. Now show me the image, and I'll go to the image, and lo and behold, there is the dynamic fissure at L4 on the right-hand side. 
And uh, I've seen this in MR. I do it with my radiologic colleagues. I have one uh, radiology colleague who has an open fissure in his cervical spine. He can do this for five minutes and the bulge just pops right out. There it is. And then he puts his neck in another position for five minutes and it's completely gone. And he can move this plug in and out uh, posturally. Um, now, of course, I've done that many times on uh, cadavers, but we see it occasionally in, uh, in, in real life. But um, that's another uh, thought, I suppose, to augment this convergence on, on the specific mechanism. Well, no one would uh, would ever question your dedication um, for uh, for science when you want to get it on the table. Getting <laughs> or my <the> stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly more than uh, than most, and more than I, I would certainly put my hand up for. But uh, touched on there and um, imaging, uh, and just wondering if you could just explain that you know that the role in, in imaging. You obviously you know, we usually have people with a a, a pile of, of images coming in to see you, and and things that you will look for that has potentially been missed in the past with uh, other clinicians or radiologists that have read them? Right. Well, oh, I could take this in so many different ways. When, uh, you know, a really good athlete comes in, they have their uh, images of every year they've played professionally, say they played in the National Hockey League for 12 years. They come in with 12 years of MRIs. I know how many goals they scored every year. I know how many games they lost due to injury and back pain. I know exactly what their training schedule was. And it is just so fabulous to follow the radiological evidence over those 12 years with their disability in different seasons, uh, et cetera. It's a wonderful uh, learning experience. But having said that, let's just take a, a more average person. The radiology is tremendously uh, helpful for someone like me if I'm the last person who is going to try and unravel their pain. Um, an image shows the full history of that person, all of their lifetime scars together with their fresh wounds. It's the fresh wounds that are causing pain, but they might look quite identical to, to a 10-year-old scar, if you know what I mean by that. So how does the radiologist know what is linked to pain? The, the answer is they have no clue because they never saw the patient. So without seeing the patient, the radiology uh, reports, I mean, I don't even read them. They're, they're just so far off the mark. And I know that my colleagues write papers, oh, there's no correlation uh, of back pain with uh, radiological features. Well, A, nor should there ever be. Um, because they don't know what's a wound and a scar, and they haven't done the assessment to figure that out. But so many pain triggers uh, simply aren't visible. Consider letting a little air out of your car tire. The car tire will bulge, and now the car drives very sloppily on the road. It's lost its stiffness, and that's exactly the right word. Stiffness helps to control the car. Stiff suspension and stiff walls on the tires. Well, when a disc loses a little bit of height through injury, uh, it now loses its stiffness and it gets micro movements in shear at that one joint. These are not visible on MRI, but when you do dynamic video fluoroscopy and the person bends over, they rotate, rotate, and then it clunks. 
and over they go. And that hints back to that question that I said in my opening with you in your first question. Do you ever get a sharp pain in your back when you roll over in bed? That is so indicative of that movement catch or clunk in the mid-range when the person is unguarded and unaware. So, you know, uh, MRIs are absolutely not the gold standard. Um, dynamic video fluoroscopy, uh, ultrasound uh, we will use. Um, oh, there's all, all kinds of imaging. However, it, uh, it can be uh, really uh, insightful with uh, certain types of uh, people. I'll give you an example. One patient comes to mind because she came to see me last week. She says, I, in, in the interview, she said, I'm really strange. I've been to 15 clinicians and most of them say the pain is in my head. And I said, really? Describe your pain for me. And she says, well, uh, when I move a certain way, it zings. I get an electrical zinger up my spine. And they all say, that's not possible. That's a bizarre symptom. There's something wrong with your head. And she's quite devastated over all of this. So I went through my usual provocative testing and I was failing. I could not replicate that zing going up her back. And I said, all right, it's time to look at the images. And then I saw her descending aorta come down the front of her lumbar spine, bifurcated L3, which it should do. And then there was this curious mass beside the femoral arteries as they started to descend. And then the mass came together in front of L4 and in front of L5, and then it split again following the uh, arteries. And I, I think it's the portal vein uh, at, at that point. It was very strange. Glowing white, which was more of uh, consistent with being fat rather than being fluid or, or dense uh, bone or muscle. Anyway, I said uh, <clears throat> to her, would you lay on your back for me, please? And she was a very slender lady, and I placed my hand uh, just below her navel and very quickly found the pulse of her de descending aorta, which as you know, it's just a couple of centimeters. Uh, you know, you don't have to palpate very deeply at all. And then I felt that and I just slid off to the side into that white stuff, whatever that stuff was on the MRI. Guess what happened? The electrical zinger all the way up her spine. She said, that's it. That's my pain. And so there you go. Uh, time and time again, uh, they are incredibly helpful in uh, my line of work, which are trying to change a person's life who really has been uh, not well served by the medical system. Yeah, Sorry for the long-winded uh, answer once again, no, but you're asking huge questions, yeah, Luke. <laughs> exactly. Every one of these questions could be a, a, a podcast in, in their own. That uh, <laughs> you know, I, I recall, do, was there a story once, I think I recall you saying that uh, you were doing a, um, a study in a lab, it might have been on Feynman, and you actually were able to image an injury occurring. Was that was you imaging then? Or I remember you talking about something, uh, do you recall that? that I, I do recall call it because there's been two or three times in my life where we've captured an injury occurring and it's an awful thing to happen mm -hmm. when someone was is in your lab or uh, clinic the first one was on a very high level power lifter this was back in the 80s and we were watching them lift competitive loads watching their spines through video fluoroscopy 
and one uh, lad picked up a load, several hundred kilos, and uh, he dropped the load and said, you know, I've hurt my back, but it was the first time ever reported in the medical literature. Uh, someone had actually seen a back injury occurred, and we saw the spine uh, flexing at the various lumbar levels, and just at one joint, and it happened to be L2-3, if memory serves, it went to its full flexion angle and passed it by half a degree, just the most minute uh, offense, but it was at the end range of motion. And, uh, you know, the uh, lifter said, well, I, you know, I've had this exact injury before, um, and he was back to lift again within about three months but you know that was a horrible thing but the the firefighter that you were talking about ruptured his achilles tendon and it was so interesting from a pain uh mechanism perspective we had our full instrumentation on and he was advancing a loaded fire hose which is spraying and and as you know it's it's quite a heavy push this hose is over the shoulder and they have to push with uh oh I would imagine maybe 30 or 40 kilos of force, if you, if you can imagine I'm using kilos in, in, in a loose way there, but you get what I mean. Um, and he advanced it, and then we saw a buckling mechanism starting to occur about his ankle and knee. His Achilles had ruptured. But he, he, he didn't stumble. He didn't, he, he wavered. But anyway, the point is the next step following that, he goes, oh, <laughs> in other words, we were, uh, have pretty strong evidence that the Achilles ruptured in the stride prior to the report of uh, pain. But uh, I don't know if that was the particular uh, injury. Yeah, it, um, might, it, might, it might have been. It was, uh, I suppose, unlucky for them, but lucky for you to sort of capture, capture some of those things. That, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and whilst we're well, on that... You actually, know where some of our provocation tests came from? Not, not to interrupt, but here's yeah, another, yeah. you know, there's these uh, controversies that people will point out to me on forums like Facebook and various social media forms. Oh, is it okay to have butt wink in the bottom of your squat? Or uh, is it okay to round out your back lifting and this kind of thing? Well, the answer is, it depends. Once again, we were doing one study where we were measuring the length change in erector spinae, and we put barbells, an Olympic barbell, which is 20 kilos, on the men's backs. And they simply did a pelvic tilt to flex their spine and then extend their spine back and forth 10 times. Do you know we had to abandon the experiment because of the amount of back pain that we were creating? And then I said, all right, I've just discovered another highly provocative test. Hmm. Um, isn't it interesting how the discs, they don't like to be moved under high load. No, and that's actually yeah. just on on that, um, talking about spinal flexion, because that's one of the things that some people get misconstrued is, you know, must never flex, must never flex. Obviously, the spine is designed to, to flex. Um, is there, you know, is there a threshold for load? And obviously, it, it does depend, but your everyday, you know, mum or dad that's, you know, picking up the, the groceries or picking up the kids, you know, is there a, is there a level that you think that, that becomes more important to, you know, to avoid that flexion? Absolutely, there is. Uh... Uh, but it depends on the individual. If they have an open fissure in their annulus, as I described earlier, 
uh, sitting in front of their computer for three minutes might cause their toes to go numb. Uh, so is it okay for them to slouch at the computer for three minutes? I would suggest not, because if you put a, a pad or a support or a pillow in, in their low back, all of a sudden you've eliminated that mechanism and pain trigger. Uh, I would suggest uh, that they'd be unwise to bend down and pick up their grandchildren, uh, uh, creating that offense. The next person, there probably is no issue, but then we get into the whole discussion of what's the biological tipping point. The more the load, the more the magnitude, the more the duration, the more the repetition, uh, this all creates cumulative loading, which has been well documented in the ergonomic literature in terms of exposure, for example. Um, so uh, where is that tipping point for an individual? We don't know, but we certainly know on a population basis, uh, we have some, some pretty good guidelines. But I can summarize it in, in a general principle like this. If you're picking up a very heavy load, say you're doing a deadlift of a barbell from the ground, the very best, most resilient strategy you can create is to avoid a fully flexed spine. Now, some people can tolerate a little bit of flexion. Um, it really is best not to, if you want maximum resilience. Um, now let's look at the strong man who picks up an atlas stone. You know those great big concrete stones? You have to. It's a strategy. The only way you can lift it is to curve your spine around it and lock it in. However, the technique that they use is they have full spine flexion, but they lock their spine around the ball and uh, don't move it. It's called a hip hoik. They use their hips to extend and then they lift the ball up onto the platform to complete the lift. So if your spine is under heavy load, it can be flexed, but you greatly mitigate the risk if you don't move it, you keep it locked. Um, but the worst thing in terms of risk and delaminating the collagen fibers, which is the real mechanism of uh, a lot of disc pathology, is to uh, put high load on the back and then move it back and forth while it's under high load. So there's all kinds of sporting techniques and Greco-Roman wrestling and jujitsu and everything else that take advantage of these principles to give you, uh, one athlete, great advantage over an athlete who you can get to violate those principles and then they will tap out with submission. <laughs> so, you know, when you study jujitsu, for example, uh, it's a great revealer of where the tipping point is in, in the average person. Uh, you can get a person to tap very, very quickly if you know how to violate the, the, their, their particular tipping point. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess with the, uh, the, the load under, under, under flexion and, and uh, movement, the Jefferson curl, your, uh, your thoughts on, on that with a loaded spinal flexion in order to, to build strength and, and resilience, is that, is that something possible that can happen? Can, Oh, well, of course it's possible. Um, you know, again, I could take that answer several different ways as well. But, it, you know, if we had a better context, I, I could give probably a more specific answer. But in a general sense, you've just named an exercise. An exercise is used to create a goal. Now, if I said to you, what's the goal? Tell me about the peculiarities that define the individual. And now let's be cerebral and ask the question, 
what's the very best tool we can come up with to achieve the goal in the safest, minimal dosage way that we possibly can. Now, if your answer is the Jefferson curl, you just found your exercise. Um, in, in my world, we usually use other tools. Now, having said that, uh, the Jefferson cool, uh, curl came from the world of gymnastics. Uh, and gymnasts, as a rule, don't lift heavy weights. They uh, control their body weight. And it's a very gymnastic thing to do, to control your body weight uh, and take it through ranges of motion, and of, of course. So, um, however, having said that, and having been responsible for the uh, rehabilitation of some very elite Olympic-level gymnasts, I don't know too many people who would want to be an ex-gymnast because of the uh, back pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, knee pain, etc. I mean, these are people who are having their joints replaced in their 30s, uh, and and really some some uh, interesting uh, backs to deal with. So, and with that, so whilst on the gymnast, so that the challenges that a that a you know a hypermobile athlete can can bring, some of the the things that you've found. Um, uh, that has been effective for, for those athletes? Is it, you know, needing to create more stiffness around there to or, or their, and also how their spine is structured too? They're being obviously different to a power lifter or, or a strongman competitor. Uh, well, it's absolutely all of those things for sure. The body controls motion through stiffness. So of course the muscles create force, but when uh, a muscle is creating a lot of force, it also creates a lot of stiffness and it can't move. So if I wanted to deliver a, a, a punch or a leg strike or something like that, I would create a pulse of force and then I'd have to create relaxation to get the speed uh, for, for creating, you know, closing velocity, et cetera, of, of the foot to the target or the hand to the target uh, and that kind of, in other words, um, athletes really, when you measure the top of the game, very few of them are the strongest in the sport. They have what we call sufficient strength, but then they have wonderful control, uh, speed of contraction, speed of relaxation to modulate this stiffness that I'm talking about. Well, the spine is a very specific and unique structure in that it's a flexible rod and yet it's asked to bear compression and shear load and all these kinds of things. Well, if I take a spine out of a person, which I do in a cadaver and put it on the table, it buckles with about 20 pounds of compressive load. Your spine can't bear load. You must stiffen it with muscular uh, contraction. Well, now the question becomes, you have to move your spine if you're going to pitch a fastball in, or a, in, in a bowl, a, a, a fastball in, in cricket, for example, or, uh, you know, plant a foot, twist and turn on, on the rugby pitch. Um, but uh, you have to create a sufficient stiffness and still move. And that's the game of it all. So when you get that wrong, uh, you, you, you will accumulate micro damage. If you keep getting it wrong over and over again, that cumulative damage will eventually accumulate to the point of pain. And if you keep going, it's, it's out and out injury. Most back injury isn't really acute one-time load. It's, it's cumulative trauma. And one of the, um, the, the, the exercises that you're a big fan of fallbacks is, is simply walking. Can you uh, 
explain that and, and your dosage that you, you'll often prescribe for, for walking for, for those with back pain? Yes. Um, well, I, I don't know if you notice, I try and start every answer with a scientific principle. So I'm trying to create two uh, principles that are coming to mind here. Have you ever had uh, a young boy or girl from a neurology ward with a paralyzed quadratus lumborum? Is that a familiar patient to you? No, no, I can't say okay. I have. What they cannot do is walk very well. So when a person walks, let's assume they plant their left leg on the ground to create right leg swing. The left hip holds the pelvis up through the abductors to create a flat, stable platform to rest the spine upon. What they also use is the right quadratus lumborum and the obliques in concert with the head abductors to help hold that platform up. So if you don't have quadratus, the person walks very competently on one leg, and then when they step to the other leg, the opposite QL, if it's not functioning, the pelvis falls, and they almost collapse into the ground, as, as does their knee and ankle. So you can't even walk without some obliques and uh, quadratus lumborum. Well, I've just named two very, very important stiffeners and stabilizers and controllers of motion to the torso. What is the activity that challenges them? Simple walking. So there's my first scientific uh, study and evidence. The next one comes from measuring world-class strongmen. And I was measuring uh, a fella who was a super yoke champion. So they get under this heavy yoke, they put it on their shoulders. And this is several hundred pounds, a few hundred kilo, and to see who can carry it the furthest walking. Well, I measured the hip abduction strength in this one athlete to be 500 Newton meters. 500 Newton meters is astounding. I remember laying on his leg when he was sidelining on the ground, and he just popped me up into the air. It was <laughs> most impressive strength. And then when I measured him carrying his super yoke, he needed 750 Newton meters of strength to do it out of his hip, which he didn't have. He only had 500. Where did the other strength come from? And it came from quadratus lumborum and the obliques on the opposite side to the stance leg to help hold the, the, the pelvis up. So yet again, we see that athleticism and the ability to uh, move in the sagittal plane is governed by frontal plane athleticism of the spine. Well, both of those examples, walking turned out to be about the very best way to challenge that to improve it. So starting a patient with short tolerable walks. Now, if you have a really challenged, painful person and all they can do is walk three steps before the pain starts, they, they walk uh, two steps um, about every 15 minutes. Now, the next person says, well, I can walk for uh, 15 minutes before my back pain starts. I say, good, walk for 12 minutes. Every time you put food in your mouth three or four times a day, go for a 12 minute walk. And very, so we've guaranteed success. They never go to pain or failure. And we build up that, athlete, that base athleticism uh, really quite quickly. And then, of course, we might progress to walking backwards up a hill, which is, a, again, a real nuance that 
we could discuss if you liked, or they might be bounding stadium stairs or whatever the, uh, the, the, the progression uh, is that gets them to their target uh, athleticism, honoring or recognizing whatever uh, adaptations that we have to create uh, for restoring that resilient spine once again. And, and with that, so you mentioned that the QL there, is there a way that you use to quantify that, that's the strength and that the QL? Or what, what was some of your common things that you'd look for to say, yes, that is a, a weakness in that area? Yeah, well, I was lucky in that I could implant wires into them and I would measure the activation. Uh, so that was really the start in it. Now, I do not have the hands of you and your colleagues. You have very clever uh, hands and you can perceive things. Now, I would have a great difficulty in palpating a psoas or a quadratus lumborum to, to discover its turgor and, and it's, whether it's hyperactive or not in the uh, motor control schema. So I, I would have to leave uh, those skills to your listenership, particularly the chiropractors who would uh, be more clever and aware than I am of uh, those kinds of things. But usually I can see it in the movement pattern. I create a suspicion. And then, uh, you know, I, I have a whole host of uh, clinical colleagues here. I have my manipulative gurus. I have uh, uh, people who, um, well, to name an example, uh, because he's a, a, a chiropractor who's only about 40 kilometers away, Larry Bell. And I know Larry Bell has come to Australia to uh, give yes, lectures. I, Larry Bell. <laughs> yeah, Larry is, is just, just a wonderful gentleman and so knowledgeable. If you're a world-class sprinter, you will know probably two people. You'll know Dan Paff, the great speed coach down in Arizona, and you'll probably know Larry Bell for unleashing that final little bit of speed to win gold rather than fourth place. Uh, and, and talk about tuning stiffness through the linkage and, and just getting the joints just tuned into those beautiful uh, springs. But he's got magnificent hands to, to feel these things that I don't. And, you know, we have these conversations and, and I think we recognize each other's skills that yeah. need, I don't have his skills. Working, working in a team, isn't it? And having, having people. Oh, it's fabulous. That can fill, fill gaps. and, and uh, it, It's yeah. fabulous. I, I just so... This is one of the joys of my life to work with all of these skilled clinicians who all bring a different skill set to the table. And, uh, you know, I just hate to see this, this, uh, oh, I don't know. It's, it's like children in a schoolyard yelling at one another about, uh, oh, uh, a certain type of therapy is substandard to their therapy. I can, I, I can think of situations in my life where, there's a there's been a time and a place for a certain technique or a skill and uh, it was the right thing to do at the right time anyway i, I wish we could get past these junior <laughs> schoolyard things that seem to be fostered by a, a two two sentence tweet or something it's yes it can be a bit that's insanity to me yes <laughs> now we've spoken of, we've spoken a bit about management of back pain what about what about prevention what are, what are some of uh, your top tips that you could you could give for for people for for a healthy back well Gosh, Luke, you, you, you really 
ask good questions. Prevention, it, it, that's a really, really tricky game for, for several reasons. You know, if I said, you know, can you, can you prevent cancer and smoking? You know, boy, it, it's, it's tough. But let's go, as, as we always try to, let's start with some evidence. So we, we've had um, uh, gymnastic squads, for example, who've done a little bit more core stability. And I hate that word, but people know what I mean. I'm not talking about transverse abdominus training. I'm talking about full three-dimensional challenge to the torso muscles to create proximal sufficient stiffness. Um, we've had some evidence that it reduces historical injuries in gymnastic squads. Uh, in the occupational world, we've had fire departments who, uh, have uh, employed an occupational health nurse plus one of our movement specialists to put in a prevention program uh, at a cost of about a quarter of a million dollars per year. But the savings over historical back pain payouts uh, are a five to one payoff. So they might have been that uh, they would save, uh, you know, one point two five million after mm -hmm. they spent a quarter of a million. So these are some of the uh, evidence uh, that I can present uh, about prevention. But now I'm, I'm going to take the other side of the coin a little bit and say it is so difficult to motivate a person who's never had back pain, never had a back injury to say, oh, what you're doing is probably going to lead to uh, an eventual uh, pain, disabling pain or an injury or, or whatever the case may be. Um, but it's, you know, it's so interesting. I, I, I get retired superstar athletes, absolute superstars, and how many of them will say, you know, if I'd known it was going to hurt this bad now, I never would have done it. And, and that is so poignant when you, when you realize this person ruled the world in their sport, but they wouldn't have done it had they known what the afterlife was going to be and what it did uh, uh, to their body. Um, anyway, uh, so getting back to, I, I know you're asking me for specific things. The first thing I would say is all biological systems have a tipping point. So just take a vitamin, vitamin D. If you're below the tipping point, you're vitamin D deficient. You're, you're not well. And so you supplement or do an intervention to bring vitamin D up to the tipping point. Now you're in optimal health. If you add more vitamin D, now you've crossed the tipping point and you're getting poisoned. And so it is with certain prevention strategies because of this biological optimization, which makes it uh, a little more uh, difficult. Um, the discs of the spine, they're not ball and sockets, they're adaptable fabrics. So everyone's adaptation schedule is slightly different. And the uh, yes, we have a, a bit of science to guide us, but at the end of the day, it's horse sense that I've developed over 30 years to know what is a good prevention strategy for, for this particular uh, person. Posture migrates stress concentrations from one tissue to another. So if you want to reduce the cumulative risk, sometimes a postural habit, you can encourage the person to change that through corrective exercises and then appropriate software training to uh, reduce uh, the risk over time. And I, I do have some evidence uh, on, on that 
uh, as well. Um, I, I remember my, my father, when I was a young kid, he would say, moderation in all things. So if I had to summarize, that might be uh, a general uh, piece of wisdom for back pain prevention. And, and what I'm thinking of there, we did a five-year study on the ETF in Toronto Police Force. So that's the emergency task force. These are the heavy-duty police officers who are repelling buildings and taking down you know, hostage situations and that kind of thing. We started with 70 men. We followed them for five years and we finished with 70 men. We got an award in Europe for, for, the, for the best longitudinal trial studying this. We measured uh, all sorts of health markers, how they moved, how they trained and that kind of thing. And then we also followed their injuries, general musculoskeletal injuries, and we peeled out of back injuries. Isn't it interesting that the ones who trained harder in the gym, and I, I, I should just preface this by saying or asking you, where do you think the most dangerous place for a police officer is? Probably out on the beat, but uh, chasing no, 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 the car, the No, no, no. It was in the gym. It was in the training gym. gym. Right. Yeah, and uh, those who were the strongest and the fittest, according to traditional definitions of fitness, were the ones with the most injuries. Those who had what we later termed sufficient strength, sufficient mobility. In other words, more modest athleticism were the ones who were much more injury resilient. So again, getting back to that general uh, generalism, moderation in all things. And I can, I can see people out here now thinking of excuses why not to go to the gym for, uh, for the sake of moderation. But no, as you said, it's in moderation, not, not, no, no, nothing at all, no exercise. <laughs> well, uh, one thing I certainly have observed in my career, and many orthopedic surgeons will echo this as well, who are the people getting their joints replaced? Yeah. It is the couch potatoes mm. and the ones who overdid it. And the fitter the person is, the shorter their athletic prowess. Mm -hmm. So those who are a bit more moderate get to keep their athleticism a lot longer. And they're the ones who are just the rocking grandmothers and grandfathers. But the ones who are really super fit in their 30s and 40s, their shoulders are blown up, their knees are gone, their hips are shot. And you're talking to a guy, by the way, with hip replacements. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I clear, his, uh, clear his driveway of snow, you were saying earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, I, I, you're I, not I, resting. I, <laughs> well, I can tell you I've earned them. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> lastly, Stu, we, we know you're heading out, as I mentioned before, heading out to uh, down here over, uh, over our summer, and I'm sure you're looking forward to getting away from that snow. But uh, just wondering if you could let our audience know what, what to expect from, uh, from your, your seminars. Well, they're four-day seminars. Uh, first, Melbourne. I know it's not Melbourne. It's Melbourne. My daughter Correct. has been there quite a number of times. Uh, she says, Dad, it's Melbourne. Yes. Anyway, uh, Melbourne and then later Sydney. So the first two days is our foundational course, which simply describes how the spine works, pathways to pain and dysfunction and that kind of thing, along with some foundational exercise and movement principles. The third day is a one-day assessment course where we just work on techniques to 
converge on more precision in the pain mechanism. That is what targets uh, and leads the intervention, whatever that is, is going to be. Uh, and then the fourth day is enhancing performance. Let's assume that we have wound down their pain sensitivity and, and we're ready to build them back to uh, a, a happy functioning human once again. Um, and again, everybody's injury history is different. Their goals are different. Uh, but nonetheless, we can still use science to guide us in some principles on how to do that. So it's a day of what are those scientific principles? And then we workshop those with uh, examples in, in skill development. Great. That sounds like a very uh, information-packed. And if anything, this last hour has taught us, you are an absolute wealth of information. And after <laughs> uh, hearing you speak in, and, uh, and also uh, on, on the podcast before, uh, it was a great honour to, to interview today. And, uh, and I've certainly learned something and, and hope our audience has too. So I appreciate the, the time that you've given us, Stu, and, uh, and look forward to seeing you out here in, uh, in January next, uh, next year. Okay, well, thank you, Luke. You, you really got me with some, some pretty big, uh, deep questions there today. But uh, you've got a nice way in your uh, interviewing style. So I hope all of this continues for you. But thanks for all you do. Thanks very much, Stu. And that's it for me. And, and thank you all for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence. And I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm -hmm.